Well, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, please turn in them to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, today we are beginning a, a new sermon series on the book of Titus that will take us through most of the summer. So uh, this morning we're going to be considering the first four verses of this short epistle. So Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, imagine that you are a, a part of a newly formed congregation in a churchless and debased area. There are those within your church community who do not submit to authority, but rather are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. You are in need of godly men who are able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. You and your fellow congregants are confused over the relationship between grace and good works and how you are to relate to other members within the body of Christ. Well, this situation that I describe is a situation that nearly every true church finds themselves in at one time or another and is a situation that precipitated Paul's letter to Titus, who is himself an elder of a newly formed congregation on the island of Crete. Now, this letter written to Titus was not meant to be a private letter read only by Titus in the privacy of his own closet. Rather, it was designed to be a public letter, a letter read to all of the Cretans. This very short epistle is packed with a lot of wisdom and sound instruction regarding how the church is meant to operate. And this instruction and wisdom is meant to benefit the entire church. And so this morning we're going to consider the first four, four verses of this epistle. And these four verses form what is called oftentimes the salutation and greeting. Now, salutations and greetings were standard fare according to the principles of first century Greco-Roman letter writing. However, as Paul is penning these four verses, he is not merely conforming to a custom of the first century. Rather, Paul is teaching us about the mission of the post-apostolic church through a consideration of his own apostleship. So let me repeat that. 
Paul here is teaching us about the mission of the post-apostolic church, meaning the age after the apostles. He's teaching us about the mission of the post-apostolic church through a consideration of his own apostleship. So my plan for us this morning is to first consider the relationship between the age of the apostles and the age after the apostles. And then we're, we will consider what these verses have to teach us about the mission of the post-apostolic church, about the mission of our own church plant, Gig Harbor URC. So first, the mission of the apostles teaches us about the mission of the post-apostolic church. Now, of course, there is a vital distinction between the age of the apostles and the age after the apostles, just as there's a vital distinction between the Apostle Paul and myself or any other duly ordained minister or elder. The apostolic office, along with the apostolic gifts, were unique to the first century. This is something that both Rome and the Pentecostals get wrong. Rome asserts that both that the apostolic office continues through the papacy and the bishopric, while the Pentecostals assert that the apostolic gifts of, of prophecy, tongues, and healings continue into our present age through the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. However, old school confessional Protestants get it right when we confess that both the apostolic office along with the apostolic gifts were unique to the first century. Now, the difference between these two ages is as drastic of a difference as the difference between the foundation of your house and the walls of your house. I've mentioned before that Jesus, Peter, and Paul use the metaphor of a building to contrast the difference between these two ages. The apostolic office and the apostolic gifts were like the foundation of the new covenant church. And those who live after the age of the apostles, ordinary ministers, elders, deacons, and Christians, are like the living bricks that make up the walls of this new covenant church or temple. Now the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are recording the transition between these two ages. In these epistles, Paul is handing off the baton of his apostolic mission to Timothy and Titus. Individuals who will spend some, and in the case of Timothy, likely most of their ministries, ministering in a time in which there will be no living apostles. This is why we see Paul command Timothy and Titus not to make sure that they're writing more books of scripture or speaking in tongues or performing miraculous healings. Rather, the admonition we hear over and over again in these epistles is to preach the word in season and out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with complete patience and teaching. And so there are vital differences, substantial differences between these two ages but there also is a line of continuity in terms of mission. And Titus 1, verses 1 through 4, record for us this line of continuity between the mission of the apostles and the mission of every church that exists after the time of the apostles. And so as we consider what Paul has to say about the mission of his own apostleship, 
this can be and should be applied to the mission of Gig Harbor URC and what we're seeking to do as we seek to uh, establish a permanent and stable church within our community. So what then is the mission of the post-apostolic church? Well, first we see that uh, the mission of the post-apostolic church is to labor for the faith of God's elect. We see this in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now notice what Paul is not saying here as he stipulates the mission and purpose of his apostleship. Paul does not say that he was made an apostle by the direct command of Christ in order to change Roman policy, in order to fight the social ills of which there were many in the Roman Empire, or even to make the Roman Empire a politically Christian empire. No, notice what Paul says. Paul says that the purpose and mission of his apostleship is actually quite narrow and specific. The purpose of his apostleship is the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, boys and girls, as you know very well, there are three elements of true saving faith, knowledge, assent, and trust. Which aspect of saving faith is Paul focusing on here? The first aspect, isn't he? The knowledge aspect. We should understand the and that connects these two phrases together as being an explanatory and. So that you could render this phrase as saying, the faith of God's elect, that is their knowledge of the truth. Paul here is focusing on only one of those three aspects of saving faith, the knowledge aspect of our saving faith. And notice the object of this knowledge. The object of this knowledge is God's truth. The Holy Scriptures containing both the law and the gospel. And our knowledge serves as the foundation of our saving faith. John Calvin once said that uh, there is no faith without knowledge. However, saving faith is not merely knowledge. It's not only knowledge. So you can think of knowledge as sort of being the kindling upon a fire pit. And the Spirit brings the sparks of assent and trust upon that kindling. But without the kindling, there's no fire. Without the kindling, there is no assent and trust. So knowledge serves as that necessary foundation for saving faith. Now Paul goes on to say something really important about this knowledge that we are called to grow up into. He says that this knowledge should accord with godliness. Now Paul says a very similar thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. He says this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedience, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, 
and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now notice that last phrase. Paul lists all of these manifold sins and he says, uh, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul is saying here that understanding sound doctrine correctly should lead to a certain and distinct way of life. Orthodoxy is meant to lead to orthopraxy. It's my opinion that, that Reformed theology presents the clearest articulation of the gospel compared to any other Christian tradition. Furthermore, I believe that Reformed theology gives us the best system to understand Scripture as a coherent and unified whole. Consequently, many Reformed churches emphasize sound doctrine and knowledge. Well, according to what Paul is saying here then, Reformed Christians should be, among all Christians, the most loving and godly Christians. Paul is saying that if your growth in knowledge does not lead to a proportionate growth and love for others and godliness, then there's something wrong with your knowledge. Our knowledge is supposed to accord with godliness. According to what Paul is saying here, when you dwell upon the forgiveness of God in Christ and the multifaceted nature of the atonement of Christ, that should lead you to ask the question, how can I forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven me? When you contemplate the love of God, which is displayed in the types and shadows of the Old Testament and fulfilled in his well-beloved Son, we should ask ourselves, how can I love others as God in Christ has loved me? When you contemplate the holiness of God revealed in the Pentateuch, you should ask, how can I be holy as God is holy? Well, furthermore, you'll, you'll notice that Paul labors for the faith and knowledge of God's elect. Paul's very specific about the demographic that he is serving. He is laboring for the, the faith and knowledge of God's elect. Now, election and, and predestination, contrary to what, what most people think, actually is an incentive and motivation for the church's evangelistic efforts. Uh, God's mission in this world is to bring into his kingdom the fullness of his elect, an elect that we are not privy to, but the fullness of his elect through the instrumentation of the church. And we as a church are called to view everybody with whom we come into contact with as someone who is potentially the elect. Because of this mission, we can have confidence that our labor is not in vain, but will actually be effective. Every day in which you witness evidences of God's common grace, you can be assured that God's special grace still has work to do in creating and nurturing the faith and knowledge of God's elect. And so part of Paul's mission and part of our mission is to labor for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, we also see that the church's mission is to labor to communicate the hope of eternal life. We see this in verse 2. Paul continues to stipulate the purpose and mission of his, apostle, uh, his apostleship in verse 2 when he says, In hope of eternal life, 
which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, the church is sort of like an embassy, an embassy of the new creation. And as an embassy of the new creation, it calls citizens of the new creation to worship. And during that, that time of worship, the church is, is supposed to remind citizens of the new creation of their heavenly hope. Now, the New Testament is, is abundantly clear that we are called to be engaged in this culture and engaged in this world. We are called to rub shoulders with, with many different sorts of people, people who come from different walks of life, people who hold to radically different convictions and beliefs than, than we hold. However, as we engage in this world, as we engage in this culture, we are never to forget our fundamental and ultimate identity. We are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of the new creation. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 as he contrasts those who are enemies of the cross with, with us, who are citizens of heaven. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his heavenly body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Just as any immigrant knows, uh, when you go to a new country, as time passes, the more your, your, the cultural practices of, of your original homeland begin to fade. And thus, it's the church's responsibility to remind us, a pilgrim people, of our fundamental identity, that we are citizens of heaven, that this is not our home, and, and the church is called to inculcate hope within her people. And so the church's mission is to labor for the sake of the faith and hope of the people of God. Well, Paul here is very clear that the church has been given a message, a message of the gospel, and the church is to take this message of the gospel in order to build up the faith and hope of the people of God. However, we also see in these verses that God has chosen a very specific means of communicating this message, namely preaching. So look with me in verse 3 as Paul continues to speak about this hope of eternal life. He says, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching. As one author has said, God has chosen means of grace to fit the message of grace. God has placed his stamp of approval on preaching has, as his ordained means of communicating this message that's meant to build up the faith and hope of the people of God. Preaching was not merely the most effective means of communication in the first century that we can now substitute with what we think is a more effective or what will be a more successful media. No, God has stamped his stamp of approval upon preaching and has called the church to be faithful not only to his message, but also to his means. And so what is so significant and important about preaching? Well, preaching is categorically different than a doctrinal lecture or a moral exhortation or, or an existential emotional experience. Preaching is that event where God promises to be present in grace. And more than that, he promises to be present in grace and work that grace within you. 
Now, this work of grace that God promises to do through the preaching of the word is something that transcends our cognition and our experience. So God, as God is present during the preaching of the word to kill and make alive, to judge and justify, he does this in a way that transcends both our cognition and our, our experience. What this means is that God works his grace even in those who are cognitively immature or declining. This means that God works his grace in you even on those Sundays in which you are distracted or you're busy caring for a rambunctious three-year-old. Think about the hundreds, if not even thousands of sermons that you've listened to in your lifespan. You have no doubt forgotten more sermons than you can remember. However, God still worked his grace in you through those hundreds, if not thousands of sermons that you have forgotten to make you the person you are today. And so... The preaching of God's word is categorically and qualitatively different than any other presentation of oral information that you will hear throughout the week. And thus, Paul commissions both Paul and the church to labor in the preaching of the word for the sake of the faith and hope of the elect of God. Now, one author I was reading this week was speaking about the significance of this preaching, and he uh, mentioned that when the world looks upon the church's administration, the sacraments, it's foolishness to them. Really? Christ is present communicating his grace through bread, water, and wine. That's ludicrous. However, when the world looks upon the preaching of the word, this should be offensive to them. The preaching of the word comes to sinners and confronts them as sinners, as those who are dead in their sins and transgressions. The preaching of the word comes to us and says that we're in need of the grace of God, grace that we ourselves cannot earn. The preached word comes to us and says that there's an objective moral order that we are called to live according to. And this morality is not something that we subjectively impose upon the world, but something that's divinely and objectively imposed upon us. And so true preaching the word should be offensive, just as the sacraments are foolishness to this watching world. Well, I'd like to make a couple uh, concluding thoughts uh, on this mission that Paul speaks about in this church as we move towards our conclusion. So Paul is very clear that his mission and the church's mission is to labor in the preaching of the word for the sake of the faith, hope, and knowledge of the people of God. Now, we see that this mission did not originate in the mind of man. Rather, it is divinely imposed upon the church by God himself. We see this in verse 3. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which with, which, with, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul was made an apostle by the command of God. And this mission that's enjoined upon his apostleship, was also given to him by the command of God. And so it is with the church. The church's mission statements is not open for interpretation, nor is it something that we can make up or tweak. There should be no innovation or creativity when it comes to the basic mission of the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's divinely imposed upon us through the word of God. Our main mission is to labor in the preaching of the word for the faith, knowledge, and hope of the people of God. 
And so this mission is divinely imposed. But second, we also see that, uh, or, or I also want to mention that this, this, this mission that Paul speaks about here in Reformed theology has oftentimes been referred to as the spiritual mission of the church. And theologians of old have referred to it as the spiritual mission of the church in order to distinguish it from the earthly, temporal, or political missions of the state or many other common institutions. So when you think about the, the, the state, the state is grounded upon the foundation of the Noahic covenant, as we thought about a little bit in, uh, last week. And thus the purpose of the state should align with the purpose of the Noahic covenant, which is preservation of this, uh, this social order. However, the church is founded upon the foundation of the new covenant, and thus the purpose of the church should accord with the purpose of the new covenant. Namely, to labor in the preaching of the word for the sake of the faith, knowledge, and hope of the elect of God. And so, Congregation of Christ, as we seek, as we pray for this work to be established within our community, we are to remain convinced, committed, and confident in this mission that God gives to us. Let us pray.